This is the Meiji at 150 Student Podcast. My name is Connor, and today I'll be talking about the popularity of American culture within Japan. So, Connor, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about uh, Japanese interest in American culture and American products. Oh. So, why did you choose this topic? I felt that a lot of the presentations I had saw so far were focused on a lot of things in Japan, things like anime, manga. So I felt this was kind of like a different topic to choose, and so I thought it'd be interesting to research. And so what kind of ideas did you have going into the project before you started your research? I did have some knowledge that there was an interest in celebrities from mm-hmm. Japan, just mm-hmm. a, based off like commercials I'd seen and stuff, so... Other than that, I didn't really know a whole lot, so that's basically why I chose the topic. Yeah, great. And so what did you discover? Well, I discovered a few things for reading articles, and I guess the big thing I could take away from it was that when Japanese people became obsessed with something that was American, they kind of like made it their own in a way. So there are some products that in America, they're not that popular, or they are, but not in the same level. And I feel like the Japanese kind of like made it their own and like put their own kind of spin on it. Can you give us an example? Well, one example I found was through actually, like, the product Kit Kat, like a chocolate bar originally from Nestle, which is in the UK, but it's under the Reese Candy Company. And in America and in Canada, too, it's just kind of seen as, like, some ordinary Kit Kat bar you'd see at, like, a convenience store, like, it's served out on Halloween. But after doing research, it's something completely different in Japan. And I found that to be, like, really interesting. Yeah, and there's all sorts of different flavors of Kit Kat. Yeah, it's ridiculous, like... I know in Canada there isn't a big of a variety, so whenever you go to the U.S., it's always like, oh, there's so many more flavors. But then when I was looking at the Japanese like catalog of flavors, it's, it was ridiculous. Like I, I couldn't believe some of them. Yeah, the green tea flavor. Yeah, there's, there's like sake s- flavor. Sweet potato, like <laughs> rum and other stuff. And I actually watched some YouTube videos of people trying them out. Uh-huh. And like some of them they thought were good, but... Some of the more strange ones is kind of like, why would this ever be in the form of a chocolate bar? Like, this yeah, is ridiculous. I had one that was that was flavored like sake. I'm just kind of yeah, wondering, yeah. why would you want chocolate yeah. flavored like sake? Yeah. So what else did you discover? Another one I f- discovered was the Japanese interest in the restaurant chain KFC. Mm-hmm. And how it's, in America, it's not as big as in Canada, but from what I've heard, in America, it's basically just seen as like this fast food, unhealthy chain of restaurants that like you shouldn't really be eating at but in japan it kind of has this different meaning particularly around the holidays it's like this big christmas phenomenon where obviously in japan there isn't a large christian population but for whatever reason on like christmas it's it's kfc like everyone orders kfc they launched this big advertisement campaign i think in late 90s i think that really pushed like a this like idea of KFC and Christmas, like on Christmas we eat fried chicken and people order it like months of the head yeah, and it's like yeah. they get this like full package of like fried chicken and wine and sometimes like cheese and stuff and it's just like this big thing that they can all kind of like get behind. Oh yeah, you have to order your Christmas chicken weeks in advance or yeah. wait in line for an hour to pick it up. On... And two, it's like the whole company gets involved, hire execs, they'll go down to help, these like hour long lineups. Yeah, there, there's a really good documentary about this called The Colonel Comes to Japan, made by John Nathan. And it talks about all of the adaptations KFC did when they came to Japan as why, and why they became so ingrained uh, in Japanese culture. 
but it's the, the Christmas chicken is definitely one that's, that's... Yeah, I think I read too that it kind of started from a group of foreigners who were in Japan. They didn't, they couldn't find turkey anywhere just because, <laughs> so they're like, what do we do on Christmas? It's like, oh, let's just go to KFC. But there, there was a very uh, astute marketing campaign that KFC did too. Mm-hmm. This, you know, we present the, the American family sitting around the dining table at Christmas. And so yeah. everyone's like, oh, we want to try to emulate And then this. I also read too that I think it was in around 2012, they released some in a collaboration with Japanese airlines where you could, between the months of like December and February, you could order KFC like on an airplane if you were flying from Tokyo to other like North American cities. Just, uh-huh. I don't know, if you like missed out on the experience, you could also have it there. <laughs> All right, so we have uh, uh, candy, food. Uh, if you mentioned celebrities, what would be an example of that? This particularly happened a lot in like the 90s. A-list celebrities, probably their agents, saw that there was a desire for but Japanese products wanted to have American A-list celebrities back their brand. Mm-hmm. So in the late 90s, you see advertisements in Japan, people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, um, Tommy Lee Jones, Britney Spears. They're all pretty like ridiculous, but I guess to them, it was just seen as a new, like fun way to make a lot of money. Like They would pay like, upwards of like $100,000 or even more than that, and they would fly them out to Japan. And since YouTube wasn't as big, People probably wouldn't even know about it on the other side of the world if it was embarrassing. So you can actually go on YouTube and look like there's like a 15-minute compilation of just all these ad campaigns. They're just <laughs> so ridiculous. I think my favorite ones were with... There's like one ad series that he does through a series of like soups. It's like pretty typical. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger is like this strong man, like charismatic guy. And he's lifting up cars with one hand. and then. But then there's just some other ones that are just so ridiculous. Like I like I don't speak Japanese, so I don't really know what he's saying. But it, they just make like absolutely no sense. And it's just like, it is funny when you go to Tokyo, you see Tommy Lee Jones' face all over the place selling the little Boss coffee cans. And yeah, that's that was the brand. It was a it was a coffee company. It's like yeah. some sort of energy drink. Yeah. Another thing I want to bring back about Kit Kat that I forgot to mention was how the marketing campaign. This is well, from what I've read. It's like Kit Kat sounds like you will succeed or, like, mm. you will do very well. Oh, like, uh, yeah, yeah, kitokatsu. Yeah, sorry, that's it. Kitokatsu. I think it means you'll surely win. Yeah, you'll surely win. So the company noticed that around exam times, there was, like, this big spike in sales because pe- particularly students were buying gifts for each other or, like, buying Kit Kats for each huh. other, and it was kind of given as, like, a good luck. Uh-huh. So then what the company did was they collaborated with the Japanese postal system. Interesting. And then... They launched this whole campaign where you could send Kit Kats to like your friends during exams, and I think that's really cool just because it really shows how they kind of made it their own. Yeah, and kind of the reaction to the consumer demand, and so there's the the consumers and the companies are kind of working together, and all of these advertising campaigns too, all different aspects of society are kind of getting together to make mm-hmm. these things very popular. I, I've also read too that it's also because the term, like the classic term for Kit Kat, is. Like, have a break, have a Kit Kat. Mm-hmm. But from what I read, that doesn't have the exact same meaning right. in Japan as it does in America. So, sure. like, they had to kind of come up with a slogan that made it work within Japanese culture. Yeah, and just like in the KFC case, you adapt to the local culture and is what mm-hmm. allows these things to get so ingrained. So if we were to kind of step back and take this big picture, you know, on the when Americans go to Japan, they say, oh, this is just Japan copying everything. It's just mm-hmm. It's just simple mimicry. Is it simple mimicry, or do you think there's something else going on here? No, I think they're really just making it their own. They're not just trying to be like American. They're taking a product that people like and putting, I guess you could say, their own spin on it and making it appeal to the Japanese population. And then there's also some movies 
genres of movies that I think Japanese people took interest from. It's funny when I was researching this because I remember in class we talked about, I can't remember the name, but there's a sort of style of like kung fu movies that Quentin Tarantino took a lot of interest from. Mm-hmm. And then there was this movie I found, it's called like Sukiyaki Western Django. And it's like this weird like cross culture between samurais and like like cowboy westerns in this like southern like western environment. And at first I was like, this is like some weird take on like Django and Jane, Kill Bill by Quentin Tarantino to like put together. But then it was funny as I went and kept watching the trailer, like Quentin Tarantino stars in the movie. And it's like, it's pretty weird. Like it starts off with a quote from Quentin Tarantino. It mm-hmm. says, and he's basically complimenting the director of this movie. And then like the next clip, it, it shows Quentin Tarantino and he's like, in this movie. So I think it's just, I just thought that was really cool how like a Japanese film director kind of like made these two. When, when was that made? I haven't heard about this. I think it was, I don't know exactly actually, I think it was like early 2000s. But the full video is, uh, or the movie is on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing. And like the trailer is pretty ridiculous too. It's just like, it's super gimmicky. Uh-huh. And like I watched the movie, they pretty much show all the cool scenes in the trailer. So like you can get a sense mm-hmm. of it. And yeah, I know, I'm a huge Quentin Tarantino fan, so I also thought it was cool that he was willing to be in the movie. Mm-hmm. Director I was mentioning in class is Suzuki Seijun. And so in the 1960s, at all the new wave films, you should go back and watch Tokyo Drifter mm-hmm. and see exactly where Tarantino got a lot of these ideas from. But can we th- talk about something you know, in the 1970s, 80s, when, when a lot of these things are coming into Japan, this kind of fascination with American culture, and we think about this in the, in the context of Japan going through its own economic boom at the time. What, what do we make of the popularity of American culture in Japan during this time? I guess with this rise in economic boom, maybe they're pulling influence from other nations or states that they see this economic prosperity. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.